But um, thank you for for popping in on the podcast. I've had the uh, I had the pleasure of enjoying what you sent. Um, the, the chocolates, yeah, because I shared the dates with my sister and uh, the truffle, and she, we both were just like, what, <laughs> what kind of sorcery is <laughs> happening with these chocolates right now? Because like the, I think the the thing that hasn't happened for me like with food in such a long time is that I haven't been surprised by it mm-hmm. in a long time, and I, that's what I'm like dying for at this point is like cook make me something send me something even mix me a drink i don't care Mm -hmm. something that's going to like surprise me that's going to like you know take me off course a little bit and just go okay wait a minute let me make sure that was not a fluke because i had the truffle first and i was like (laughs) hold on hold on so i grabbed my sister she was in the middle of something i'm like i need you to stop and have this truffle real i'm not sure that that's what just happened and i just need other people that this was correct. Cause it's just every, I was people like, you know, that moment where you realize like everything has been like thought about and it's been yeah. carefully taken care of. And then it's all put together. I was, you know, like if I could have taught any of my interns at any point in the kitchen, like that is the point I always wanted to drive home that each thing makes a difference. And like, there is no like step to throw away and no. everything matters. No. And so, yes. Yeah, so I thoroughly enjoyed everything. I even, <laughs> Well, the, the figs. Oh my God. Okay. So, first question is Is there a little cashew mixed in with the peanut? Yes. Okay. Yes. Because I have this terrible cashew allergy, right? Oh my God. Stop. Girl, don't even worry about it. And so I was like, I'm going to get into these figs. We're going to have a good time. And so I got about halfway into one fig. I was like, okay, this got cashews, but I'm going to finish this and take a Benadryl. Stop. I don't care. I'm prepared to be reckless. <laughs> It's fine. I'm going to do this anyway. So I sat there for the rest of the night, just throat scratching, but happy as I don't know what. I'm like, this Benadryl is going to kick in. It will be just fine. And I'm not yes, sure but if it, that's like the greatest compliment I've ever gotten for our chocolate. That's, that's the one that's going to eat like your food against their own. <laughs> I'm going to eat this against my own better judgment and best interest. It was because I don't get to eat because I don't get to eat cashew. And like that combination, you just add that level of like fat and richness and sweetness that you typically don't get from because peanuts can sometimes come across as a little brittle yeah, and like a little bitter. And so the cashews just balance it ber- perfectly. I'm like, I don't care. I do the same thing with um like super spicy food. Like once a year, I'll have like Indian food <laughs> and just <laughs> get the live ready. consequences. It's fine. I just, <laughs> it's worth the, it's worth the pain sometimes. It really is. So I was like, so thank you for sending everything i ate everything without regret and <laughs> i still no have some of the <laughs> some of the the coffee nibs left so i'm just like slowly trying not to get rid of all of it in one shot i ate like all of my girl scout cookies in a few days and i'm like you have to stop eating this right <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so like talk to me about like you know after eating the chocolates and like getting to a place where you're just kind of eating the person you know you're connecting with the person's expression of something Mm. like you want to now know like okay how did you get here because not you know not everyone's doing what you do and as well as you do it Mm. and that's like always the first thing that stands out and then um you know reading like digging into your backstory and reading like the information about like the brand and the Mm -hmm. stories behind like your connect your now your family connection to chocolate Mm -hmm. and like that ancestral connection um like where did you how did you find yourself like here 
Um, <laughs> you know, it's a windy story, but I think that, you know, some of the best ones are. Um, yeah. I had been working in corporate corporate America. I worked at Under Armour for a few years. And while I was there, um, I was working with their nonprofit section, um, working with one of our local um, uh, organizations here, just kind of establishing nutrition and fitness um, programming for youth. Really loved it. I'd had a background in nutrition counseling, even from before Under Armour that um, I was able to put Put into action, which felt really good and really fulfilling. And then somewhere along the way, the funding for the program was cut, but I decided that I wanted to continue along that path. So I made the decision to leave Under Armour. Um, I was in my 20s, so it was easy to leave things. (laughs) Isn't it always? Yeah. Um, And continue to pursue what I was doing. And along the way, it was this very like serendipitous moment of I literally found a postcard that was advertising raw chocolate classes. And I thought to myself, okay, I'll try this. You know, it, I had gotten the comment lots of times that people were looking for a way to transition from refined foods to more holistic ones. And Mm -hmm. they were missing their sweets and they were missing their treats and all of that. So I thought, okay, well, this could be like good for my business. I can, you know, use this as a supplement to what I was doing, not like the thing that I was doing. So it was as much of a surprise to me as to anyone when literally that class was in June of 2012. And then in September of 2012, just a few months later, we had our first customers for chocolate. Wow. Um, so it was wow. like a super quick turnaround. Yeah. Um, I think that the thing that surprises people the most is that there wasn't like this intention behind I'm going to start a chocolate business one day and I'm going to be a chocolate maker and it's going to look like this and this is how it's going to roll out and this Mm. is how we're going to do. There just wasn't any of that behind it. I was really just taking it day by day and just doing what came to me. Um, That's and that was the best way to do it. That's the only way to do it. It's the best way to do it. Right. Like there wasn't any of this, um, like nepotism where everyone (laughs) in my family had made chocolate and there was already like this shop established that I could walk into and just, we were doing everything from the beginning. Um, Mm. and I think that if anyone would have told us, you know, the challenges that could come with that. And we were just so naive going into it and just being, you know, just paying attention and going with whatever came our way. And of course that's nine years ago. And then to learn now of this ancestral connection, it's like, well, I mean, it was a postcard, but also, also, (laughs) I'm like, however, also, there are these other cues that we were following that we had no yeah. idea um, that wow. existed. And, you know, I started the business with my dad all of those years ago. So it was very much like this family, um, this family vibe. And it's always been that way and um, continues to continues to be that way. 
So oh. how did your how did your dad get involved? Like it's so because I'm think I think about my dad and because when I was reading the story, I was like, <laughs> okay, I mean, yeah, I can see because because they are like dads are like huge cheerleaders, right? And they really right. are like I just want to sit back and like watch you figure it out and like so like how did he really go? You know what? Let's do this like together and like let's participate and like what was his interest in the whole thing? You know, he had just retired. Um, from working, I guess, 37 years as a um, right. civilian in the with the government. So he had that sounds been about right. working for <laughs> a lot of years. He was ready to enjoy his retirement yes. and <laughs> travel and do his thing. And then meanwhile, here I am tripping over postcards and stuff and being like, hey, dad, you've got time on your hands. What do you think? <laughs> You want to help me? And he was so, you know, I joke, but he was so invested from the start and like just so excited. And I think that having worked like, you know, he worked a government job for so many years, like doing Mm. a passion project after all of that and doing work that was entrepreneurial and where we could make our own rules and, you know, is the complete opposite of the, um, of the rigid, you know, structure of government work. So I think it was intriguing to him on that level. Um, of the two of us, he's the lifelong chocolate lover also. Like I, I mean, we'll get to that, but gummy bear Skittles. Oh, okay. Yeah. I see what you're saying. She was like, I like a fruity candy. Um, Yeah. That was my, that was my jam. So again, this was very like seemingly out of left field in the beginning. Wow. Um, that's it's funny because like when I told my parents, because my dad, it's funny, my dad worked for the United States Postal Service for 40 years. Oh, wow. I completely understand that. Yeah. He retired very recently. Uh-huh. Um, so like he now spends his time like gardening and like sitting outside <laughs> and just catching breezes and not having to go and work at night. And so at this when I called him and I talked, I told my mom, like I wanted to become a chef because I made a huge pivot. I was working in like marketing and graphic design before I became a chef. So I was work- used to working in an office, used to working in a cubicle, used to doing all of that stuff. And like most people who knew me growing up, they were like, she's very like scholastic in nature. So I'm like huge reader. That's what you found me doing. If you like saw me dip out and disappear, you could probably find me balled up in the corner with a handful of books. And so it was this, oh, she's going to be like an attorney or something like that. It was, I was that kid. And so like when I was making these announcements about I'm going to get into food. Okay. Really? And I think my dad's response was like a chef. Really? (laughs) It was just like, yeah why not? (laughs) And so it was, I understand that like people don't, it took something to like pull you into that space and like make you consider yourself to be a part of it. And I was just like, I had it, food had always been in the background. I had spent most of my Saturday mornings watching whatever public television had to offer uh, before there was actual food networks Mm -hmm. and things like that. And so, you know, that stuff was always intriguing, but I just never, I was the kid getting kicked out of kitchens as a kid because I was not super graceful. So like burns, cuts, all the things. And so my mom would always be like, you don't have to be in here right now. You can come back when it's time to clean up, but do not. Cause it was, you know, you're going to drop something, you're going to spill something. And so like getting into food was odd because people like none of my family knew if I could cook or not really. 
they're like, I don't understand where this is coming from. Why? And I just was like, I saw it as a very easy, it's, it's one of those things where I saw it as a really simple transition because it's like the work I'm doing now is in service to people. The work I would do in food is in service to people. So I didn't see how like me changing my activities changed my why. And so I didn't, mm-hmm. I didn't struggle with that. I didn't struggle with that transition at all. And mm-hmm. so people were like, how did you, because all this time I've worked in food. Cause I started, I actually got my first restaurant job in 2012. Um, so it was right. like, we have been on, we've been on these parallel paths. Yeah. And so I got into my first kitchen and I, I, logistically, I didn't know if I belonged. I didn't, my, you know, I had an instructor in culinary school who like pulled me aside after a class and was like, I should tell you, like, don't spend too much time in culinary school. And I was just like, I'm sorry, you know, you've paid all this tuition. You're like, what? What are you, what are you talking about? Like, at first, I thought he was going to tell me this is not for you. I was going to have like a Simon Cowell moment from like right. American Idol. Right. And then he was like, all the things that I would be, we would be able to teach you in culinary school, you already know. You already possess these things. And I'm like, I've never worked a day in food as a professional ever. He's like, but you have the innate qualities of a person who can like manage a kitchen. And I was just like, okay, okay. He was like, so don't spend too much time in culinary school. Wow. Like, get these basics and get out of here. Get into a good kitchen because you'll learn so much more there than you ever will in culinary school. And I was just like, so I sat with that for like a whole semester. Like, and every time he saw me, he would pull me aside and tell me the same thing. Wow. Oh, you're still here? Why are you still here? You should find a good kitchen. And I'm just like, what? So like my first kitchen job was in New York at this restaurant. I interviewed for that job when I lived in Nashville via Zoom. When wow. Zoom first came out. Wow. And no, I'm sorry, Skype via Skype. And I got here and I had no clue like what I was doing. I'd never worked on the line before. I'd been working in catering and I got on like that first dinner service. And when I was done, I was just like, I am thoroughly convinced this is what I should be doing. And when I left that job, the chef was like, you are probably the hardest working person I have ever had the pleasure of working with. He was like, I know this is your first job. You have a lot to learn. He's like, but if you do not give up, you will be really good at this. And I was just like, okay, all right, ancestors, black Jesus and wow. African angels. Thank you. <laughs> so, wow. Yeah. It's, it's so, and it's funny because I'm thinking about your postcard and it's just like, <laughs> mm, that, that, you know, the ancestors are like, go ahead and slide her this card. Oh yeah. You only need a whisper. We know she can. She's not sure yet, but mm-hmm. she'll figure it out very quickly. Mm-hmm. And like the fact that you went from like this class to first customer in such a short amount of time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like I just I'm learning more and more like in the last year, like these these risks that people are taking that are paying off. I think that's where if the pandemic has not gifted us anything else, it's this opportunity to like take the bigger risk for sure. Um, and like go ahead and spend space, you know, failing or making mistakes and learning and like, and getting up. And I'm just so, I'm excited to see people take the risk. Oh, I didn't think I could do that before. I didn't think that was something I would love. And then just that's soaring perfect. when they get in there. So yeah. now that first, that first class for you, yeah. <laughs> like, what was that? Well, how, walking into that and just going, okay, we're going to do this. Like, <laughs> like, honestly, there was just still so much I didn't know mm. that 
there wasn't a whole lot of intimidation. There wasn't a whole lot of, cause I'm a lifelong learner. I'm like, yeah. you find me in a corner with a book. Um, so I mean, and still to this day, it could be related to my work. It could be completely unrelated, but I'm a curious person. Yeah. Um, I, um, love a good story. I love listening. I love reading. So like, you know, it wasn't, um, like just being in that environment of learning something new and, um, being exposed to something new that wasn't weird for me. Like that mm. was that was fun for me. That was like, yeah. oh, this is this thing. But you know, as I was in the class, it was like by the end, I knew that it was more than just an exposure to a new thing. Like by the <sighs> end, I knew that oh, this is actually something special. Like I got that little feeling of oh, this is a little star along my way. You know what yeah. I mean? Like how you can yeah. look back and see like, Oh, well I met this person. So then I met this person and I did this. So then I did that and this and that and that. But in that, even in that moment, I knew that I was in the midst of something special. Mm. Still, I didn't make any plans necessarily for what it was going to look like or what I was going to do. And, um, it, it you know, I, the romance of it was quickly replaced by just like the grind and the hard work and yeah. and all of that. Um, but in the class itself, to answer your question, I just felt like this is something special. Um, I'm enjoying learning this thing and I can do this. Like this is, mm. this is something that I can do. And that was it. That was all I needed to know to do it the next day and then the next day and then the next day and then the next day. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. It just, it just unfolded in a very organic, in an organic way. And again, that doesn't mean that it wasn't hard. That doesn't right, mean that right. it wasn't a grind and that, ugh, I mean, it was those first that those first couple of years was, was wild. It was crazy. It's one of those moments. And I feel this way also, like, I don't know about you, but I feel this way too. If I look back at like dorm life or, um, I was an athlete. So like looking back on those years, there's certain things and certain things that I look back on and I'm like, how did I ever, ever <laughs> literally could never do it again. Would yeah. never, I could never do that. Like there's so oh, yeah. many moments like that. <laughs> and this Who was that person doing that? <laughs> <laughs> like, I hope yeah. this works out because right. never starting anything. <laughs> <laughs> For again. Nope. And it's funny. Cause like even doing like this podcast, you know, I was, well, I sp I've spent most of my adult life starting things mm -hmm. like, Ooh, this is a great idea. I should try, mm -hmm. you know, I should try because it's that if I wait for other people to like come upon this thing and like create a solution and then engage in that solution, we're going to be sitting here forever. So I was like, like do it with like 80% of the information, figure it out. Right. I'm a huge, like build the bridge as you cross it type of person. Because yeah, yeah, sometimes yeah. you have to, like there are moments where I am more calculated and a lot more strategic, but for the, on the whole, I'm just like, well, the longer we just wait and sit around for a solution, like if we all have p parts of a solution, and we're working together, like we'll have at least 92% of a solution is better right. than like nothing. Right. So can we at least start and let the like 8% reveal itself? Totally. And I am, yeah, there's plenty of spots in life where I was just like, I can't believe <laughs> I did that. 
and why would anyone <laughs> let me? I yeah. um yeah. someone should have stopped me at some point. <laughs> I should have had no business doing that. Uh, uh-huh. I, but like you you get you gain so much from those types of moments because yeah. you can look back and go, oh, so I mean because some things are just about telling you like you can do it like n- like pushing your limits a bit and you you know you we impose limitations on ourselves and even if you're kind of a high risk person like me even then you're still like i'm imposing this risk like this is the line i won't cross and mm-hmm. then something comes along and goes are you sure mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you're like well if i, have to, <laughs> if I must now is there I was like, if I have to, uh, like, like the podcast alone, uh, like that was a huge risk. I'm sure. First, yeah. I also put like to get past like the basic human things, like hearing your voice on tape, um, figuring out skills that you don't know you don't have, like mm-hmm. audio, like recording audio and producing audio and editing it and everything else. And you're just like, eh, that can't be too bad. Cause you, you know, you grew up as the kid who would like listen to the radio and have like the, the record play and pause, but yeah, right. <laughs> ready to go. Yeah. And that song came yeah. on and like, you know, so you figure how much harder could it be than that? Yeah. And uh, you know, like you're waiting for the DJ to shut up so you can like get the beginning of the song. And so it's like, well, I mean, oh, if it's that kind of energy memory, <laughs> Oh my god! Okay, and you got cassette tapes. And yeah, I was so like, you remember the little um, the label, and you're just Absolutely. like, what songs are? Absolutely, yeah. I was told kids won't enjoy the tactical experience of those things. Unfortunately, I know. Uh, I there's know. something to that. Yeah, <laughs> there's something to that. Yeah. So, but yeah, like you, I think part of I, I, I will attribute a great part of my ability to take larger risks to how we grew up mm-hmm. is the fact that if you wanted something, we did not have these technologies mm-hmm. to accomplish them. And we had to really figure out how to do them. Most of the technologies that like current generations engage with now come from us because we were trying to figure out how to get something done. And so now you have this technology that allowed you to do it. And so like the fact that we went from like having to record the radio to like streaming music, like there's a direct link to that activity. And um, so I think a lot of the ways we grew up does speak to like our ability to take larger risks and problem solve. Like we were left to our own devices a lot of times as kids to solve conflicts, um, to come up with solutions, to figure out how to entertain ourselves. Because, you know, I, I don't know about anyone else, but my parents were like, no television during the school year. You can watch it during the summer. There's nothing but reruns anyway. And then you spent most of your time outside with your friends, yep. you know, we're learning how to ride a bike, learning how to skate, learning how to, you know, play flag football or whatever it was. And I think all of those experiences cumulatively, you know, put us where we are now to like take these risks and problem solve in, in the middle of it, like kind of go, okay, that's not, we were able to like pivot very quickly in these situations. So when when the pandemic started last year and everybody was like, see generation X guys, (laughs) we have have things to teach everyone. And I'm like, we do. It's like, we lived that life. We lived the life of our parents work and you had a key under the mat or a key around your neck. You had to let yourself in, make yourself a snack, get your homework done. You had to really self-manage. And so I think that speaks a lot to how entrepreneurial most of us are now. Totally. And so it was like, well, I'm going to get this bill, this, this business up and going. And people are like, what? And you're just like, that's it. I yeah. mean, we come from those people. Yeah. Um, so you're like, I definitely want to talk about like some of these, the, the chocolate you sent me and like where some of this comes from. Mm-hmm. Um, so because I, like the, the stuff date, the fig, 
those things are so they they speak so heavily of like ancestry and like African culture and black American culture, which you do not get in chocolate. Chocolate is extremely European, as everyone knows, um, in this country. And then with the conversation that Ghana is currently having with Switzerland and not exporting any more cocoa beans to them. And like there's just this huge moment, I think, right now. And I am excited to see like yourself steering chocolate back towards kind of its origin spaces. Um, you have this kind of uh, South American space with chocolate with like the Mayans and the Aztecs and those types of things. And then you have like that African space of chocolate and like cacao beans growing there and those types of things. So like those two things, like the dates and the figs mm-hmm. where, you know, was like that, was that, an- was that moment kind of a reflection of that ancestral moment you had like discovering that about yourself or it was that something before, that's- and that okay. which feels like um which feels very cosmic it feels yeah. and 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 um it it replicates throughout my career so far like i'll do something and then later it's space in that ancestral conversation comes back to it comes to fruition mm. so i could think that it comes from you know very just non-related beginnings. Like for instance, the date popper was what you're talking about. It's yeah. organic medjool date that has um, cacao nibs and raw honey and salt inside of it. And then it's dipped in chocolate. So where did that come from? It came from the endings and you'll, you'll appreciate this as a chef is just that at the end of the day, you have all kinds of just random stuff lying around <laughs> from other stuff that you made. I've got some nibs <laughs> over here. I've got the salt, obviously. I've got some melted chocolate over here that mm. I didn't use up, some pieces of date, you know. And that was always just my end of workday snack that I would make for myself, just putting all that random stuff together and dipping it in whatever's left. And then that would be what I would eat. So for a long time, that's what the date popper was. And then finally, one day I made it for someone and they were like, um, they had the same moment I had. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I didn't know I needed this. Yeah. yeah, like that, Gingy, you should probably put that mm-hmm. on the menu. Just mm-hmm. saying. Um, yeah. not trying to tell you how to live your life, but nope. this is really good. And you know, when it's just to me, the end of day scraps, like, you know, I liked it, but and then so the good. fig actually started out being filled with chocolate and dipped in chocolate. And then that was a similar thing of, oh, well, we have this peanut butter left over. Let's just do that. And we did that for months before that. Anyone ever saw that? That was just like the shop, you know, our little shop treat. And then finally, one day we figured out how to like actually do it. And oh um, my God, those I just, anyone to anyone listening, (laughs) don't overrun her website with these orders, y'all, but do yourself a favor. When it feels right, because I just it's the way you you didn't realize like that's how you've always wanted to eat chocolate. Like that's the thing that you were looking for. Like, okay, you've been shoving like almonds in it and caramel in it and a bunch of other things. And then you get this moment where you're just like everything seems so closely related to each other. Like they come from the same 
earth. They come from the same place. They live together that way. And, you know, like most chefs, we kind of do the whole, if it grows together, it goes together type of type mm-hmm. of vibe. And so it's that it feels the same way. Like, why hasn't this happened before now? Like this <laughs> needs to be, you just, wow. Now your truffle technique, which again is, it feels right it feels more right than like my because most people go in and you'll have the truffle like that's you know been shaped either in yeah. the hand or it has like you know the 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 tempered shell mm-hmm. and because you're getting like commercial mm-hmm. commercially made truffles and so those were just like again like me and my, my sister bit into one and she didn't that initial like bite wasn't the thing she got into it a little bit and then was like <laughs> What was that? I was like, exactly, exactly. You didn't realize you had been doing that all wrong, right? Like you just feel like I, this whole time we've been eating this incorrectly and now someone's finally done it correctly. And thank you. So like that technique, was that something you got from like that chocolate class? Was that something you had seen or it was just like kind of a organic Hey, this Here's is how we're going to do it. Again, and I'm going to start to sound like a broken record. <laughs> no, you're fine. I keep asking the same question. I, <laughs> I like. I didn't know another way to do anything. Mm. I'm not. I was. I. I. Uh, you know. Again, I just had no frame of reference for chocolate making. Really, not as a consumer nor as a producer. I just started figuring things out the way that made sense to me. Um, I didn't have this like love of a certain truffle that I had had at this one place that kind of formed my perception of what that would be like. Um, It was just, I want the texture to be kind of like this. And I feel like I want it to taste really, really chocolatey and not have, so nothing Mm -hmm. we have has dairy in it, mainly because I'm allergic to it, but also just because we want it to have a really strong chocolate flavor. Um, Wow. And that's because that was what my idea was. Like, that's, that's what I thought it should be like. Um, and everything else felt like it would be a distraction. So to make a ganache in a traditional way with heavy cream felt like a distraction to me. Um, Mm. We do tempered chocolate, but to put tempered chocolate on the outside of this truffle felt meaningless to me. I thought, why do we need to do that if we can have it like this? Um, So I don't know. I just, I feel like that was the gift of having created something from literally scratch was just yeah. designing it in a way that um that made sense to me at the time. Um yeah. so I, I I am I'm sitting here sitting with the the fact that you said you don't put dairy in any of it and I'm just like <laughs> And yet again we've been doing this all wrong. I just there's because there's I think because a lot of things like Western food culture is so weird because it's like we want that example we want coffee but please put three-fourths dairy in the cup and add as much sugar as possible and then give me like a quarter cup of espresso and you're just like (laughs) so you really didn't want any coffee (laughs) you wanted something else and so the same thing with chocolate it's like 
are you sitting with that chocolate? Do you know? Because it's hard to know like where it comes from and what's been done and how someone's treated it and, and taking care of it. If you're you know throwing a bunch of sugar and, mm-hmm. and dairy into it, but people are so used to eating it that way that you're just kind of like, oh, this doesn't have the same mouthfeel or anything. And what I'm and my point being, you've managed to achieve those same kind of like luxurious, buttery mouthfeels that people are used to with really high quality chocolate without mm-hmm. the, those mechanisms. And so that's where I'm always like, that for me is infinitely harder mm-hmm. than the other way, because you're like, okay, so how do we get that same experience across right. without those crutches right, at that right. point? So I'm just like, but I mean, honestly, you're nailing it. Because I was just like, I don't know <laughs> what I've been eating this whole time. Yeah. But it wasn't this. And I've been thinking a lot about like specifically with black women, like black women and our relationship to like luxury mm-hmm. and what that really looks like, what that word really means and like how it's expressed and how we're told it's supposed to be expressed. Mm-hmm. And so like that, I think that was like the whole of my experience. So every time I ate something new or tasted something new, it was like, that's the word that kept coming out. Like there was this like luxurious moment where you feel really well taken care of mm-hmm. when you're eating something. And I also, well, if you can get that across to a diner or someone eating your food, like that's the thing you want. That's the value exchange. Mm-hmm. Like you want them to eat something that you've prepared or you've made and go, I feel really well taken care of by this person. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, cause I, I used to freak my, my interns out a lot and tell them that like feeding people is a very intimate experience mm-hmm. and you aren't going to really get that experience outside of like, you know, a bedroom Mm -hmm. with a person you've made something and now they've they've taken it in and so of course that would be like oh my god chef come on i'm just like guys i just want you to respect the process that's Mm -hmm. all i'm saying um Mm -hmm. you are preparing something with your hands which means your energy and your spirit and your attitude and all that stuff goes in it and you cannot discount the fact that someone's going to experience this might be their only experience of you Mm -hmm. and i think Mm -hmm. it's like carla hall who always says she doesn't cook when she's in a bad mood yeah. for that reason yeah. and so like everything always does it feels really loving and like careful yeah. and that's you know thank you because i it's rare that we get that experience with food um so i did want to jump into the ancestry part though because i remember when i was reading that i was just like man i wish my ancestry dna results gave me something that brilliant <laughs> it doesn't say anything in mind about people who have done any of this it's um dang it because uh, i took my years back and I was just because you know for me I'm like I don't really resemble a lot of people in my family and so it's always been like challenging growing up to not feel like you belong to the people you belong to and so you know I, I thankfully grew into like looking a bit more like my mom but I look like her mom um, and I look like my dad and so when you know my dad's a bit of an introvert so no one really ever sees him and so it's like when I'm near even but even when we've been in each other's presence and people are like so who do you belong to and I'm just like the only man in the room who shares the same lack of melanin as myself that's who I belong to and they're just like oh that's your dad oh I always thought you it's either oh I always thought your dad was white or oh <laughs> okay and I'm just like right. okay guys right 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 but I also well, it's it, it affects you know because like because we've been so deep into kind of these conversations around colorism within the community mm-hmm. like I was tell people yes it is because my sister is on the opposite end of the spectrum of, of melanin as me. Mm-hmm. So when we're together, it was, it's, it was always like, so is your dad white? And it was never a, oh, you're, you have two different 
fathers. It was always like an accusation. So when I told people when you're processing that as like a seven, eight or nine year old, it's very different than when you're having this conversation with an adult woman. And so like as an eight year old who just wants to belong to the family she's in to hear that you're just kind of like you just never seem to internally fit anywhere. And, you know, like I had this conversation with someone else and we were talking about the same thing about ancestry. And it's like when you, you know, when you're growing up, your mom is your first standard of beauty. Mm-hmm. And so if you're told you don't look like her or you're never really connected to her in like the public when people are connecting to people, they're like, oh, that's your mom. Mm-hmm. And you're like, yes. And they're like, oh, you start to like have these questions like, well, what do I need to do? to look more like her, not because she's darker than me or lighter than me or her hair straighter or curly. None of that counts. It's all like if your mom's your first standard of beauty and the first person you consider beautiful is her, if you don't look like her, you start to question your own beauty. You start to question your own um, value in that way. And it's like, well, if I don't belong to her, if people can't obviously point to me and go, this is this person's mm-hmm. child, then what, where does that leave me? Kind of leaves you very isolated and insular mm-hmm. in your childhood. So you grow up kind of going, well, do I belong anywhere? And I think like when we are talking about ancestry, that's a big part of that question. Who do I belong to? What people do I belong to? Where did I come from? Why do I look the way I look and love the things I love? And so like I pursued my DNA test because of that. I was just like, you know, kind of feeling lost in your own identity. And you're like, I know I'm black. I know I don't necessarily, like, as an adult, you learn, like, I don't have to prove that I'm black because I am black. Like mm-hmm. there's nothing to prove there. At the same time, there's always that part of you that's like, but how black are you? Mm-hmm. Is mm-hmm. black a spectrum? And you're like, no, black is not a spectrum. <laughs> it's not, mm-hmm. or you're not. And so that ancestry DNA test, like, was just so impactful for me. And it was like, okay, what can it tell me? What can it continue to tell me now um, about who I am and like why I do what I do? So I would love to hear like your experience about coming into that space and like sure. what, what made you ask the question? Well, um, well, first, it's funny because um, I I'm, I think that my ancestral journey did start with ancestry um, DNA, like just seeing what that showed up. Mm. And I'm not sure if it like helped my agenda or hurt my agenda, because what I found out was that I was just like a stew from <laughs> everywhere. I'm talking about the Philippines. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, Vietnam? Vietnam? Why? Yeah. I mean, everywhere, like you name it. And I had some people over there. And so it was just, you know, I, it, it started pretty innocently. Um, I asked my dad about my grandfather and, you know, my trouble was in, um, I have a really small family, um, you know, like super small and we're kind of spread out. So not really a whole lot of like deep family traditions or, um, family roots even always felt a little bit, um, it just always felt missing. It never felt really connected. Um, and, Uh, So I just started asking more questions. I wanted to know about my grandfather. I knew that he was a photographer. Um, I knew that he loved to travel. So that's how the conversation started. I just asked my dad, you know, like, where was, where was my grandfather's, his dad's last 
trip? Where did he, where did he take some of his last pictures? I kind of imagined myself taking some kind of like journey through like where he had been and where he went. I'm a big, I'm, I always traveled a lot. So I thought like, well, maybe that'll be like the purpose of my travel and, and obviously also trying to find just the purpose of myself and what I was doing. I mean, at the time I was already making chocolate, but like, why am I doing this? Why am I making chocolate? This doesn't make any sense. Like, yeah, Yeah. it's good. Yeah. you know, it has a, a following of its own and it's doing well, but that wasn't enough for me anymore. That, that wasn't a motivator for me. I'm much more motivated just in purpose and in belonging and being where I'm supposed to be when I'm supposed to be there than I am any of like accolades or anything like that just didn't matter anymore. Um, it's cute, but... <laughs> It has, that has a lifespan for me. Yeah. Um, it wasn't, and even like making chocolate, it hasn't ever been enough just to make chocolate and just to, you know, be in a shop all day or experimenting with flavors. Again, it's fun, but that's, that gets old for me. Like that's not, I've always known that that in and of itself is not my purpose. Like I'm not here just to make chocolate. Exactly. Um, So I I feel like that was the weight behind me when I started asking the questions of that seems simple enough, like where was his last trip? But that's where I found out that his last trip was to Guyana and so I started asking like, okay, well, why did he go there? And you know, come to find out that's where, um, we have family and that's where, um, my dad's side of the family is. And, uh, so that was finding out something that I didn't know. And then also learning like the part of the country that he went to and then finding a photograph of him and who he connected with there. And she had this big machete just like strapped around her And I mean, I've traveled enough to know that you don't use a bit, you don't like carry around a machete for a whole lot of things. Um, but you do, if you are living on any kind of like a cacao property farm, that's like part of the wardrobe. So I started to get really, really curious, like where, what is going on? So, uh, so in looking it up, I found out that this area that, um, he had traveled to, which was just outside of Georgetown, um, where the notorious Jonestown, um, ah. was, is a, like pr- their primary crop is chocolate is cacao. And I was like, Hmm. <laughs> like, <laughs> okay. 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 You have my attention. Okay. Right. Right. Um, and that's where the and that's where that's where it all started and actually where you've even found me today because sort of on the unveiling of all of this um we couldn't travel anymore covid hit so and i had a kid and it just <laughs> everything kind of delayed i guess what the next step will be which is to actually go there and yeah. do some more digging around but even the prospect that this could not even could be but i know is a part of my reality and my professional reality is that there's this very 
generational um, tie to what I'm doing is is so like affirming and validating mm. to my place in this industry, um, to my purpose in in continuing this legacy, um, and then gives me the power of choice over how I decide to present it to the world. Mm, No longer am I just like responding to what everyone else is doing. Like this is the way that chocolate is supposed to be in this country. So this is the way that I'm going to do it. No, 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 no. Now I get to make the rules. Yeah. My blood now. Like I'm not, I'm not looking at, you know, all of these other like chocolate companies that are doing this very European presentation of, of chocolate, which again, I don't even like anyways. So (laughs) it all eventually tastes the same. So it's unfortunate that there's something to be said for it. Like, I also don't want to, um, I don't want to discredit it because there's, but my point is that there's enough great chocolate bars. There's enough yes. really good chocolate bars. You could have on your desk right now, 30 great tasting bars of chocolate. We don't need another 72% chocolate bar, basically, no. is what my position is. Um, but maybe what we do need is someone who's ancestrally inspired to make something that feels authentic to to her own to her own path. Yeah. Um, and that's what I'm starting to really un, un peel back. And it's a difficult thing to do because again, it's going back to our earlier conversation about taking risks yeah. and doing things differently. Like how, like, will I be a bona fide chocolate company, a chocolate maker? If I say to the world, I make chocolate, but I'm not making chocolate bars. Like, what does that make me at that point? And, Mm. you know, on a good day, I can say to myself, well, I'm an individual. I make my own rules. I don't have to do anything the way that anyone tells me to do it. And, you know, I don't have to respond to these expectations that, by the way, are pretty, like, grounded in this colonialist um, mentality. Yeah. And then on a bad day, though, I can think to myself like, oh, no one's going to take me seriously. My company is not going to be taken seriously if I'm not doing like the status quo chocolate bar. Um, So it's something that I grapple with. And I think I become more and more clear, though, on the former, like as I continue to just read and research myself and um, have conversations like these even. but it it continues to be a journey and and this is where this is where I am today so i love it yeah yeah it's i think once we've decided that most of those actions taken like to make the chocolate bar to standardize like what we how we cook or how we produce things is really attached to just commercialization of it mm-hmm. and that um and capitalism. Yeah. So it's like, how can we sell more of it to more people, even if they don't eat it? I think what I th- that particular method um, 
out of balance the way it is now produces a lot of waste in a lot of spaces. And I just, you know, you'll realize like, oh, I ate half that chocolate bar and threw the rest out um, because I kept eating more of the same. Um, or I just, it wasn't interesting. So I just left it or like, it just produces that attitude that it's very uh, disposable. Mm-hmm. Whereas what you do is, you know, for me, it's like, that's like chocolate in the wild. Mm-hmm. You know, that's how you want to experience it. That's how you should be experiencing a plant, something that grows from the ground and this is what it produce this is what it's capable of doing because if you know eating the cacao fruit on its own mm-hmm. is a whole ex- experience in and of itself that most people will never have because it's you know we're now you know we're drying it same thing with you know um coffee it's mm-hmm. like we're drying it out we're roasting it mm-hmm. it's becoming something else and you know it's still an incredible feat of like science and and physics when you create chocolate from this this pod um at the same time though in and of itself it's a great it's a fruit that's interesting and delicious to eat and yeah. you know people have sustained themselves on it for a long time so this idea that you know producing it to look a certain way to create a certain volume so you consistently have the same thing because it's the same thing in in kitchens and restaurant kitchens the goal is to produce the same plate of food Mm -hmm. over and over and over and over and over again Mm -hmm. consistently and while you might be producing that plate of food for a new diner each time more often than not it's a a return diner. It's someone that, oh, that's my favorite thing on the menu. Mm-hmm. So you make it over and over again to make sure it tastes the same way mm-hmm. and it looks, this. it's plated the same way mm-hmm. in the minute you decide to go off script. <laughs> people are like, but I'm like, you know, I told people the success of fast food has more to do with the, the economics of it and the um, consistency of mm-hmm. it than anything else. Like you go to McDonald's and those fries are always going to taste the same way. Mm-hmm. No matter how much they mm-hmm. charge you for them, no matter what, you know, what changes in the world. Mm-hmm. And I think there is there. I mean, there's there's been studies done about that. With the amount of anxiety reduction people gain when something is the same over and over and over again. Yeah. And uh, it's just like so, yeah, to venture into these new food spaces, to really engage with your food it with more meaning and like in a deeper way does require a little bit of you going outside of your anxiety free zone. <laughs> but I feel like what like what you produce and what other people are producing right now, it's worth that risk for the eater. It's worth that risk for the consumer to experience something they haven't had before, but it's so delicious. And it just kind of elevates what you've already been locked into. Like, look, I love a peanut butter cup. I do. I appreciate that. But to find peanut butter in a fig dipped in chocolate, like the, 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 the all the points that you hit with a peanut butter cup, you hit with that fig. You get the peanut butter, you get the chocolate, but all of a sudden this, you know, I love figs. So like that fig comes in and you're just like, huh, I didn't think I needed needed these figs in this experience, but thank you for someone doing it. And like the way you, you know, coming up with those things, we feel the same way, like, of course, with like family meal in most restaurants mm-hmm. you're just mm-hmm. kind of like why can't yep. why can't we serve this to people yep. and it's like ah, oh, they won't like it i'm like but we i think we're underestimating them a little bit mm-hmm. like this is delicious this, mm-hmm. is, this is the best thing i've eaten all week yeah and we're not serving it yeah yeah why and they're just like well it doesn't i'm like and this is my point like let, let's grapple with that question right are we underestimating our diners? Are we underestimating consumers? Have we done them down a little bit mm-hmm. making these decisions for them? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, for the, you know, the future, 
of the brand. Um, I can't imagine, like, I wouldn't even know what to do, like, to, like, commercialize what you do, like, to try to produce it in larger mass. I just think it would ruin it. <laughs> but that's just me. Uh, <laughs> I was like, don't put that in a factory. You're not Willy Wonka. Don't do it. Um, that's where like, so we what, are. That's where wow. we are. I mean, I, I don't know why we, I haven't been convinced by any logic of why we would want to do that. I mean, yeah. We, we who work together are all self-sustaining. It's our only jobs, you know, it's, it's luckily, and it's been a, it's been a great ride in that, in that capacity. Um, so I'm not really sure why we would want to, um, make it bigger, make it, um, more commercial. Um, it's not a goal that we have. Nice. Um, the goal is really only to keep exploring what we can do authentically with cacao. Um, mm. And sometimes that means that we can make a batch of like 10 things. Um, other times we can make big batches, but sometimes it means that we do small batch. That's kind of the, the yeah. what, a, what a micro business is we can do what we want because you know there's we're making our own our own rules and i think that you know something that you said earlier i want to just add to which is that people start people i know that our experience has been that people adjust their expectations when there's a good story attached to it so it might not look exactly like your fig. I can send you more figs and they'll all look different from the ones that you got before. Um, you know, they'll, it'll, it'll taste the same, but it will look totally different because that's, there's no two, anyone who's a fig, (laughs) they all look different. Yeah. Um, so when, when we put that story with it and when we explain, you know, the origin of a flavor or a combination or what it takes to make it, um, the expectation shifts to looking for a story rather than looking for the product to be any one way or another. It's like, I know that there's going to be something good about that. So you can kind of manage the consumer, um, expectation on a retail level in that way i feel we've 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 found it's just the it's just the storytelling it's as much as what we do is the production you know it's just yeah. as important yeah i think people can in you know at watching like cookbook production right now and like how people are engaging with like food media finally i think losing some of the kind of gatekeeping energy mm-hmm. that we had mm-hmm. uh up until last year mm-hmm. and a lot of the gatekeepers a lot of gatekeepers found themselves out of a job yeah um, it was just yeah. like oh once we once we can pull the shades a little bit open the doors and connect people with the stories behind the food they're eating cuz i think that the pandemic did that too with food that we kind of pulled the curtain back and people discovered that when my food gets to my door 
at least eight people have touched it mm-hmm. like or have been involved in it. And that there's real people back there. Mm-hmm. There's real stories happening. Mm-hmm. There are, you know, there are dishwashers and bussers and um, prep cooks and all types of people who mm-hmm. are involved in getting my food to me. And so like being able to connect story to food the way it's supposed to be, the way people deserve. Because I was like, well, what 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 is sharing a meal? What is having dinner than just an opportunity to like share stories with each other? over food. And, you know, that's, I think if we can keep those relationships being built for people, um, I think we will see like organic reductions in like food waste, like all the challenges we have with environment and, um, uh, climate and things like that. What I think the component that's missing is the fact that things don't have stories attached to them and that things are produced in high volume. So if you have a million white t-shirts, and there's no story for any particular T-shirt, how it was made and who made it. I mean, this like haute couture fashion. The reason right. why you only make three of those garments mm-hmm. is because of how hard it is mm-hmm. for eight women in a little workshop mm-hmm. to make eight of those garments because you're hand sewing every single mm-hmm. bead and feather and you're hand painting every yep. flower. So when you do, you know, start to make these things more micro and start to help people understand that there's a person behind what you're eating or consuming. I find that you naturally have like a reduction in waste. You have people valuing things. They don't throw them out so quickly. Um, So I feel like with food, like in food waste and how we are engaged with like agriculture right now, the more we can kind of push narratives behind these things, I think you're going to see people back away from this idea that I need 18 of them and I'm going to only eat three and throw the rest of them out. Agreeing. It's like, oh no, there's a person like breaking their back to grow that and harvest it and get it to me and know all of my figs don't have to be the same size and same shape. Um, I don't have to go in the grocery store and all the apples look exactly the same. So they have no flavor. Um, Yeah. All of those things. And so do you back a word from earlier? It it redefines what luxury is. Oh my gosh. Yeah. But is it because wasn't that always the definition of luxury? Mm -hmm. Like it was kind of this level of like exclusivity to it. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, well, not everyone can get their hands on it. So it's a luxury product. Mm-hmm. And like, oh, we only made 150 of those. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that makes it a luxury product. And like, so why not engage with smaller brands doing small batches and making things beautiful in smaller numbers mm-hmm. instead of trying to go, oh, I need more of that. Because it's just greed at that point. Exactly. Can you make 200 of these? Like, exactly. why? What do you exactly. need 200 of these for? Exactly. Eat two and sit down. I, <laughs> I just, because it's funny because I've had a lot more requests for the podcast. Hey, are you going to not, inter- are you going to interview, you know, are you going to grow your guest list to be more than black women? I was like, absolutely not. <laughs> it is a luxury for you to get on here mm-hmm. and listen to, I think what now we're at, considering all the ones that have not gone live yet, there's probably like 45 interviews with black women working in these very specific spaces. I'm like, so you don't even know 45 black women. Right. So let's start there. Right. Right. So the fact that you now can like be familiar with 45 different black women who work in food, hospitality and wine and beverage. And just like, did you know that many before now? You couldn't even name one. So no, I'm not, I'm not shifting that. I'm just, that's not going to change. There's enough of us out here doing this work yep. where you could, I can go on for quite a few seasons yep. before I have to like dig around and look for other people. 
So yeah. Um, uh-huh. So so for the um you know post pandemic and you know it's not as hard to think about as it was like six months ago. But I'm looking at people and their behaviors, and I'm just like, oh my god, it's going to be like Mad Max and Beyond Thunderdome for at least nine months. Yeah, leaving the house because after you see, I, I mean, seeing everyone's behavior for spring break, I was just like, mm-hmm. uh-huh. oh no, this is not going well. No. Um, <laughs> collectively you have all lost your minds but what do you like for the next few years like after we're getting out of the pandemic and like you know what do you see for yourself and your work i know having a new little one you know in the picture now but shifts a lot of those plans for sure for sure um so yeah um where do you want to take the brand you know the years i think that this is it's a little bit unpopular, maybe what my idea is, and maybe like anti-marketing what my what my idea is. Um, but like at any other point of my career, this is just me paying attention and me listening to myself and um, taking the cues. Um, it, the pandemic has been huge for for me, just like it has been for everybody else in different ways. Mm-hmm. But you know, as I said before, I've never saw myself making chocolate for the next fifty years. Like that's not what I ever saw myself doing. It always right. has felt like a transition point to something else. It's always felt like a part of the story rather than the story. Definitely. It always has felt like a chapter in the book, not the whole book. Yeah. Um, the my the point of what I do has never been. I've never claimed it to be chocolate. The point of what I do is people and connections and community and telling that story. Um, and this pause that we've experienced, um, I think. Had, if I'm if I'm brave enough, I think that this pause has signified something of a transition. So I believe that my my company um, has legs, and I think that I have a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful team um, that loves what they're doing and is making chocolate and exploring it. And they're responding to their own cues, like what they want to do in life and where they are right now. Um, for me, especially with having a baby, I don't go into the shop anymore, really. And for a long time, I mean, between COVID and between having a kid that's not in daycare, I'm pretty much at home now and I kid that I'm like the administrative assistant for the business now because I just am like doing emails and um it's like paperwork like, emails paperwork yeah. like mm-hmm. that's li- like I make labels and do paperwork all day is really what I feel like I'm doing but for a long time um you know for months I felt myself really fighting that and being like why am I not- I want to be in the shop I'm you know I love my kid of course but like I I'm like here at home with a baby. I can't go anywhere cause COVID and just really frustrated with this yeah. like space that I'm in and really frustrated with 
just my circumstance and feeling like I need to be in the shop and I need to be doing and doing and doing. And then slowly and gradually, and really quite recently, just like over the last month or two, it just felt like, oh, but this is what you asked for. Like, but if you pay attention, it's happening right before your eyes. Like you're, Mm -hmm. you're living it right now. You are being directed into that next phase of whatever that is. I don't know what it is, but I do know that I've been given more opportunities to have this conversation on like Mm. a put on a platform than I've ever been given before. And that each thing seems to land on someone's ears that then has something else to offer or a new thing to, again, I'm a learner and I pay attention and I read and I'm here for things. Yeah. So, um, I, I can't tell you because I would never have been able to tell you at any point in my life, like where I'm going to be three years from that point. I just have never (laughs) that. Same, Um, same. (laughs) People are like, what are you doing? What are you planning? I'm like, (laughs) and that's something that I've learned to not, to delight in not being able to answer because whatever ends up happening is like way better than whatever I oh my like, God, tell yeah. you is going to happen. It's just way really better. <laughs> Life is good. I don't have to force things into their, like, I don't have yeah. to put the square pegs into the round holes. Like, I'm oh, going to yeah. wait for the round peg. I'm good. And I will wait. It starts happening, and that happening is literally right now. And it's a really exciting moment. Um, I it's a constant thing that I'm reminding myself because I'll still have those moments of frustration of like, I need, I need to be somewhere. I need to be doing something. But a lot of times the magic of that next space is in the pause, right? It's like where you feel like nothing is happening and you want to panic and you want to press all the buttons and open all the doors and do all the things when really it's that, moment of pause where there's a lot of energetic things like going on. And I just believe in that. And yeah, I've seen evidence of it so many times in my life and other people's lives. And in that hindsight picture of like, I was so upset and da, 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 da. But, you know, the transition happens, not just from like, good things or intentional things, but also from difficult things and challenging things, maybe even the greatest transitions of all. So um, absolutely. I don't know. I can't tell you, but um, (laughs) you know what? I will say it's a trend. I just, I usually ask that question because I want to, I, I I like, I would love for listeners to hear and understand that not having an answer is an answer. I th- there's this like what I've noticed is that in people in in our efforts to decolonize our thinking mm-hmm. and kind of remove um like white supremacy and western capitalization and those kinds of things from the center of what we do in the center of our decision making becomes this thing of like I'm just going to wait until the universe aligns the next thing I'm going mm-hmm. to wait until, so there's no rush. We're not 
pushing in the way that like Western culture tells you to push and you should be in the so and you should be doing the things and you should be accomplishing and you should be producing. And so I noticed that as like specifically as black women kind of re-engage with who they are, who they come from Mm -hmm. and those like really natural instincts that we have about how we like move in the world, how we work Mm -hmm. and what we produce for people and how we're in service to the world. A a lot of it is what people would think is slowing down. Mm -hmm. But I find it to be just like recalibrating yourself to be more purposeful and not, okay, I'm just going to do as many, like volume, volume, volume is like the center, you know, theme for most of this, where for us, it's like value, value over volume every time. And I think I've been like saying that for the last year or so to like anyone I've had a conversation with is that I'm finding that um, like as a person who used to work in marketing full time, that part of your brain never turns off. Mm -hmm. And so when I look at things, I look at it through that lens still. And so like looking at food and looking at like the scope of the food world right now and how we are engaged in social media and all the other things, what I'm seeing is that people are finally reaching kind of that fever pitch of it's too much. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a lot. We have, there's so much volume. There's mm-hmm. a volume of messages, a volume of people, a volume of values. Like there's just so much that you're buried under. Mm-hmm. And now the things that are starting to stand out are the things that produce less volume and give you more value. I'm like, I, once we can, as human beings realize this is about an exchange of value mm-hmm. and not how can, how, how much can I give you? Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, give me one thing that's done mm-hmm. really well. How about we do that? That's like that. That's all I want. I <laughs> it's like, like give me the one thing really good and we're in good shape. But yeah, I, I'm noticing that just um, in the trends. People are fine because they've had to like slow down mm-hmm. and go, oh, I'm giving you 10 things that are just kind of okay and maybe a little good mm-hmm. when I could be giving you two things that are extraordinary. Yeah. And I'm like, how about we all gun for that? Yeah. Let's all push for that. You know, we keep telling people quality of life means a lot more stuff Mm. when really quality of life means a lot more time. Yeah. And a lot more value and a lot more like people and quality relationship because the stuff everybody's clearing their houses out now. Right. Stuck in your house and you realize you had too much stuff and you can't be there and you're just like. Who can I yeah. send this to? How can I throw this out? What can we yeah. do? And so I, I'm hoping that on the other side of this, that people do not re-engage with this idea of I need more stuff. Hoping to, and and then like shake that out of their work as well. Kind and of like, oh, we don't that kind of feel some ancestral trauma though of like Girl, yes. women <laughs> feeling like they have to just give and give and give and give and yeah. support and support and support and support and volume, 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 and just like work, 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 work. And if we just like stop yeah. and be like, oh my God, no, actually I'm going to do this differently yep. and I'm going to see what you can offer me. And I'm going to see how I can now reshape my life based on what really is fulfilling. And if I do what's fulfilling, I know that that's in the best service to those around me, as opposed to just being like, no, I just am a workhorse and I'm just going to do, do, do. I mean, that's, that's really dangerous. That's a dangerous go down and you're not, (laughs) <laughs> you're not bettering your community at that point. You're just you're just responding to this trauma that yeah. is ingrained in us. Um, oh yeah, but that I do feel is worth healing and able to be healed. 
Yes, um, absolutely. It fe- yes. again, it feels risky because you're not you're then not really responding to the expectations that I feel like we're we we feel like we've profited from or we feel like we've thrived from if we just do what people expect of us. Yeah. Um it's like, oh I don't know what's gonna happen, but <laughs> it's I'm, true. Yeah. I'm gonna try this a different way. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I just I it's that I, you know, that long arm of slavery, like you kind of go, you know, if you weren't considered a human being for 400 years and you were considered part of the economics of a country, you were no more than a dollar bill or a piece of machinery at some point. And so when you finally were emancipated, you know, got this kind of weird pseudo freedom. You weren't considered a human being, though. Like I was like, emancipation did not mean that you became human all of a sudden. It really didn't even mean you became a citizen all of a sudden. Emancipation just means that you were no part, no more a part of the economic system. I was like, not, you know, slavery was a nine billion dollar business for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And so to it's like telling them to go into a factory and dismantle everything and shut the factory down. Mm-hmm. That's literally what, you know, with emancipation was, that was the proposal. Mm-hmm. Well, we understand you're making a tremendous amount of money from this and that you are extremely wealthy because of these people, mm-hmm. but we are asking you to just burn all of that to the ground. Right. Yeah, right. Doesn't mean like they granted us citizenship. Doesn't mean that they granted us humanity. No. It was something we have to now recapture. And I think a lot of what we do and how we work and how we think about our lives and our value is still caught up in this idea that we are like cogs in a wheel. Yeah. And to reclaim this idea, like to decolonize your brain a little bit. Yes. And, you know, like, let's let's really get into. (laughs) Yeah. Like, let's get some real emancipation going on here and like emancipate yourself from the idea that you are nothing more than a, a piece of machinery. Yeah. And so, yeah. yeah, well, ma'am, I am because I, I was like, I can talk to all of my guests for a very long time. <laughs> Uh, but you have a child to get back to and continue. And so I just want to say thank you so much for hopping on. It has been an absolute pleasure oh, to pick your brain and talk totally. to you. And yes, and I will, you know what the thing is, I'm going to be reckless enough to order those figs again. Um, <laughs> cashews and all y'all. Trust me. It's worth it. It's worth it. If she's prepared to send them to me, I'm prepared to buy them. <laughs> so, um, so <laughs> but you know, for the time that we have where you are producing such beautiful products in the world, I am deeply grateful. And, you know, for me, I am not one to go, you need to do this for the rest of your life. I am not that person. What I am that per I will be that person who is extremely grateful that you've decided to do it right now. And when that time ends, it ends. And we know that whatever you do next will be as brilliant and beautiful as it is now. Um, so yeah, so thank you. Thanks so you. much. All right. Let me hit this stop button.